Well, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, as we continue in our study of Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 16. Uh, about five years ago or so, Shelby and I had a Honda Pilot. It was a, a pretty fun little car. You could uh, hose it out, which was neat since we had a, a one-year-old at the time, and so that was pretty, that was pretty special. Um, it wasn't a particularly big SUV, uh, and there was one occasion when I needed tr to transport a very long piece of wood. I think it was the, the wood behind these things over here on the side. Long, long board. And I was convinced it, it was going to fit. And I had it in there. It was touching right up against the windshield. It was just hanging over the tailgate just a little. And I, I was convinced if I close that tailgate, it's going to be fine. It's going gonna, it's gonna to fit. It's going to work. And my wife said, no way. And I said, no, sweetie, come on. I got this. this it's it's, it's going to be fine. She said, it's not going to work. And uh, convinced I was right, I pushed that tailgate closed. It was okay. It was half, half locked and pushed it that, that quarter inch more. Spiderweb crack on the windshield, right? My wife, surprise, was right. She was right. I was so convinced that I knew best. She could clearly see the problem. And I didn't listen to her. And I paid the price, paid the price. We've all had those times, haven't we, where we are convinced we know best, but we're actually wrong. We're actually wrong. But what happens when we think we know better than God? What happens when we think we know better than God? What happens when human beings think they are wiser than God himself? It's a far more common problem than, than we might think. And it's actually the fundamental problem that Jesus deals with Peter about in our text this morning, verses 20, uh, 21 through 23. And the text we're reading today, we'll see that Peter gets ahead of God, thinking he knows better than Jesus himself. But Jesus, in response, reveals that God's wisdom ultimately prevails and calls Peter and us to submit ourselves to God's wisdom instead of attempting to bring God under our control. Let's read our text, starting in verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Let's ask for God's help as we come to his word. Our Lord and our God, you are abundantly wise. You know all things. You've planned the beginning and the end of history. And Lord, not only that, but you are good in your wisdom. And you have given us your word that we might learn of Jesus Christ, your son, that we might know of you, O God that we might be encouraged in our faith, that we might receive a correction when we need it, Lord, when you know we need it, that your word would guide us, that every single word we read on the page of the Bible is there from you, exactly as you intended it to be, and that we can trust what we read in Scripture. And so, Lord, we pray that as we read of this encounter between Jesus and Peter, as we hear Jesus's teaching, that we would receive it, that we would consider those ways in which we are getting out ahead of you, thinking we know better. And Lord, would you 
guide us back to the path of righteousness, the path of blessing, the path of life under your care. And Lord, help me to proclaim your word faithfully and helpfully for the glory of Jesus and uh, the benefit of his church. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Three things we see in this text, three main points here. One, we see the plan, the plan of God. The Savior must suffer and die in verse 21. Verse 22, we see the protest. Peter rebukes the Savior. And finally, in verse 23, the problem. Man resists God's thoughts. Looking at verse 21, uh, the past couple weeks, we've, we've been in the, the previous verses here in Matthew 16, and we've seen Jesus ask Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter makes his wonderful confession, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Uh, last week, we saw how uh, Jesus gives Peter the keys to the kingdom of heaven, how he gives him this authority as an apostle to teach and preach the gospel. Really a wonderful uh, paragraph, verses 13 through 20. It's wonderful things that we are hearing there. But when we get to verse 21, there's a transition. And the transition really is in what Jesus is teaching about. Now, up until this point, chapters 1, through 16 in Matthew's Gospel, up until this point, Jesus has been teaching about the kingdom of heaven. He's been uh, delivering parables about the kingdom. He's given the Sermon on the Mount, which is about the law of the kingdom. Um, but he's been somewhat silent regarding his own primary purpose for being on earth. When we look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus doesn't mention anything about his death and resurrection in clear terms until this point right here. And here in verse 21, Jesus begins teaching his disciples something new. The subject is his central purpose and mission, why he is on the earth. And it really focuses on his death and resurrection. We read in verse 21 that Jesus begins to show his disciples what must happen to him. Uh, this, this word show goes beyond just stating facts, but actually demonstrating something. Jesus uh, I, I suspect, is showing them in the scriptures and explaining, you read this in the Old Testament, here's what I'm going to have to do. He's not just telling them, he's showing them, he's explaining and demonstrating what is ahead of him. And he, he says in verse 21, he's come to do four things, all of which are, are related, of course. The first thing is that Jesus must go to Jerusalem. He tells his disciples, I must go to Jerusalem. Now, in Jesus' day, of course, Jerusalem was the religious center of Israel. And it had been since King David brought the ark back there. There had been three versions of the temple built in Jerusalem by the time Jesus was alive, and uh, the religious leaders of Israel were headquartered there. Um, but Jerusalem also had a reputation, and it wasn't a good one. Turn to Luke chapter 13 with me. Luke chapter 13, we'll look at verse 33 and 34. As Jesus describes the reputation of Jerusalem. Luke chapter 13, 33 and 34. Jesus has been uh, alerted by the Pharisees that Herod wants to kill him. And so he's getting ready to uh, head that direction towards Jerusalem. He can't die somewhere else. Here's what he says. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish apart from Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often 
When I've gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Jerusalem was the city that killed the prophets. Now, it was the place where the kings of Judah lived in the Old Testament, and because of that, it was often the place that the prophets of the Old Testament were sent to. The kings need to hear this message from God. Uh, Jeremiah was almost killed there. Zechariah was killed there. There's other historical accounts of prophets being killed there as well. And so Jerusalem was the place that Jesus was ordained to die, just like the prophets of old. This was the place where he would make sacrifice, like the Old Testament priests. This would be the place where he would establish his kingdom, just like the Old Testament kings. The second thing Jesus tells his disciples that he must do is suffer at the hands of the religious leaders, the elders and chief priests and scribes. Now what should the religious leaders have done when Jesus came to them? They should have received him. They should have said, blessed is the name of the Lord. The Messiah is here. The Son of David is here. But that's not what happens. They would arrest him. They would mock him. They would beat him. But that wouldn't be the worst part. The third thing that Jesus tells his disciples he must do is is die, be killed. Ultimately, the religious leaders would hand Jesus over to the Romans and demand his crucifixion. Now, Jesus knew this was coming. He knew this was what was ahead of him. But it's important to remember, Jesus is not forced to do this either. But he willingly lays down his life. He willingly, voluntarily goes to the cross out of love. As Jesus himself says in John 10, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Jesus willingly went to the cross. And his impending death was not an unfortunate accident. It was not an unforeseen tragedy. No, the death of Jesus Christ was prophesied hundreds of years before by the Old Testament. And I wonder if these are some of the passages Jesus showed his disciples. Passages like Psalm 22, 16 through 18. You can turn there if you'd like. Psalm 22, 16 through 18. David is writing prophetically. He says, For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. This is a thousand years before Christ. And David writes of the things that would happen to him down to the specific details. Or Isaiah 53, a well-known passage. Isaiah 53, 5-6 for example. The whole chapter speaks of Christ, but these verses in particular. They say, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray and we have turned everyone to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 700 years before Christ. The Messiah then, the servant of the Lord, according to these texts and many others, would not first be a conquering, victorious king in a worldly sense. He would be a suffering servant 
dying as a sacrifice for the sins of his people, dying in our place as a substitute, upon him was laid our iniquity. This is nothing less than the fulfillment of the Old Testament sacrificial system. All those bulls and goats and lambs that were killed to stay the wrath of God upon sin, they could not take away the guilt of sin. And that is why Jesus had to come. His sacrifice was enough, powerful enough, great enough. He was perfect enough. That through his death, he could actually remove the guilt of sin and provide what animals could not, forgiveness of sin. Full forgiveness of sin. Jesus wouldn't be killed because he was a threat to power. He would be killed because this was God's wise plan to provide salvation for sinners. To take care of the debt of sin that we owe. As Jesus said, I will bear it in their place. This was God's plan all along. But that was not even the end of the story. There was one more thing that Jesus said he had to do. Finally, rise again on the third day. Rise again on the third day, verse 21. Jesus knew he wouldn't be abandoned by the Father to death. That death couldn't hold him, but that the Father would raise him up three days later after his death on a cross. And this would be the sign of his triumphant victory, friends. This would be it. As he rose from the grave, this was the proof, the sign he had defeated death, sin, and the devil. The suffering servant would rise again as the conquering king. And this is why Jesus came, first and foremost. He didn't come to teach us a better way to live. He came to die for our sin. That by faith in him, those sins would be forgiven. This is the gospel. That's what Jesus is revealing to his disciples. Good news. This is good news. He's revealing God's plan, but unfortunately the disciples don't see it as good news. They hear these things and they are troubled. They're concerned. And one disciple in particular takes it upon himself to protest this notion that Jesus would go and suffer and, and die. And that brings us to our second point, verse 22. Peter rebukes the Savior. Now consider the position of the disciples for a second. Um, they love Jesus, right? They're, they're loyal to Jesus. They're following him around. They've left a lot behind to be his disciples. And, and a lot of that is probably because they think he's going to kick the Romans out, right? He's going he's to bring back the glorious kingdom of Israel. But nonetheless, they care about Jesus. And they have just been told for the first time, at least recorded, right? They've been told for the first time we're aware of that he's going to purposely go to Jerusalem, purposely give himself over to suffer and die. That might be pretty hard news to hear, right? That might be kind of difficult for, for, for a couple reasons, right? And Peter, who just a few verses ago was hitting home runs, speaks up yet again. Right? Um, there, there's a reason that the Proverbs talk so much about our, our speech and how often we talk. Um, Peter's a good example of why. Now, Peter takes Jesus aside for a private chat and then, shockingly, rebukes Jesus. This means to speak sternly, to correct somebody. 
right? He begins to rebuke him. The, the disciple who said, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God, now takes it upon himself to rebuke the Christ, the Son of the living God. And, and this reveals, you know, one, just how little Peter understands about who Jesus is, right? He says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God, back in verse uh, 16. But it shows us how little Peter actually understands about who the Christ is or what he was to do. It also reveals to us how uh, spiritually immature Peter is at this point, that he would think it's appropriate to rebuke Jesus. And really, the core of Peter's rebuke is he's shocked. He is appalled that Jesus the Christ would suggest these horrible things would happen to him, right? Or, or that Jesus would let such things happen to him. And, and Peter says to Jesus, far be it from you, Lord, may it never be. Peter's rebuke, in the words of one commentator, conveys this is not just undesirable, it's unthinkable. Right? Peter cannot comprehend the things that Jesus has revealed to them. He cannot accept what he has just heard. In his mind, these are impossible, unthinkable, completely wrong events. And I think this perhaps demonstrates why in verse 20, Jesus says, don't tell anybody I'm the Christ, because they don't quite get what that means yet. They don't understand the true nature of the, the Christ's work and ministry. You see, for Peter, and probably for the rest of the disciples, the idea of a, of a suffering, dying Messiah doesn't fit. It doesn't fit. Right? In, in, in Hebrew culture, such a fate would be the fate of a cursed man. Not one who is blessed and favored by God, like the Messiah. Right? This, this is not the proper fate for the one who's supposed to overthrow the Romans and restore the Jewish people to, to sovereignty and supremacy. Right? How, how does going, suffering, and dying fit into that plan? In Peter's mind, Jesus has lost sight of the true goal. Right? And this leads Peter to reject Jesus' teaching because it doesn't agree with his own ideas. And what authority does Peter have to do this? None. He's the disciple, not the rabbi. Peter should be listening and, and learning from Jesus. But instead, he's trying to persuade Jesus to, hey, get back on track, Jesus. Get rid of those negative thoughts. Let's get our heads back in the game. We got some Romans to overthrow. Come on, Jesus. Stay positive. Really, he's trying to get Jesus to do what Peter thinks is best. But we really can't be too hard on Peter, can we? Because um, we can easily be guilty of the same thing in different ways. Right? We, we, we can be so easily quick to think we know better than God. How many times have you encountered something in God's Word that was hard to hear? If, if you're reading your Bible, I promise you'll find something that is difficult in it. Something that makes us uncomfortable, right? How many times perhaps have you even been upset with God because he says or does something in Scripture that, that you don't like or don't agree with? Um, sometimes we encounter doctrine. We encounter teaching from the Bible that's difficult for us, right? The, the Bible, for example, talks about hell, a place of eternal punishment for the wicked. That's, that's not really a comfortable doctrine for the human mind. And, and people often say, well, that seems like overkill. That seems like overkill. The Bible teaches that only through faith in Jesus Christ can anyone be saved. But the human mind says, well, 
God's got to have a little wiggle room for people who don't believe in Jesus, right? Surely there's a couple other paths to God. The Bible teaches that man is naturally wicked and sinful, that, that we are the problem. But the human mind is, is somewhat offended by this and says, well, I mean, I'm a pretty good person, right? Most people are good at some level. The, the Bible teaches that we're saved by grace alone as a gift from God, but the human mind says, well, wait, 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 wait. That's not fair. We, we need to work hard, right? We need to... We need to do good works. Otherwise, it's, it's not fair. We have to earn that salvation. I need to play a role in things. Or, or maybe your struggle isn't with doctrines, but maybe the practical things in the Bible. The Bible has a lot of commands and instructions for how we live that don't always appeal to us. Right? The Bible states that anger is often a sin in the heart, right? That our, our anger is often sinful in nature, but how often do we try to justify it and come up with reasons why we're right to be angry? The Bible states that drunkenness is a sin, but how often do people soft-pedal and downplay their problematic relationship with alcohol? The Bible says that the love of money is the root of all evil, but how often do we say, well, it doesn't really mean that, and, and it's okay for me to have more and more and more and follow the materialistic culture that we live in, or the Bible states husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church, but how often, men, do we ignore this in favor of viewing our wife as the one that should meet all of our needs and desires? Uh, uh, the Bible states that wives are to submit to their husbands, but how often, uh, wives, do you ignore this in favor of seeking your own way? Right? The list could go on and on and on. There's a lot of commands in the Bible, and we don't like all of them in our flesh. We don't. We try to find ways around them. All of us have encountered things in God's word that at some level we have a hard time agreeing with. And we actually do the same thing as Peter sometimes. We attempt to reshape our understanding of God or our understanding of theology or our understanding of life to be more in line with what we think is true rather than submitting our thinking to God. We, we, we say things in our hearts like, well, God wouldn't do this, right? That's, that's not what God would actually do. Or God doesn't really command this or that. He, it doesn't really matter that much to him. Or I don't really need to do this or that in response to what Scripture really clearly does say. We try to blunt God's clear word. And when we do this, we're just like Peter. We are, in effect, rebuking God. Attempting to get him to fit into our mold, right? Attempting to reshape him into our own image. And maybe you're here this morning and you're not a Christian. Maybe you're exploring Christianity and I'm so glad you're here. Um, and I have a question for you. If that's you, how do you respond to the gospel? How do you respond to verse 21? That Jesus came to die and suffer in the place of sinners to bear the wrath of God so that you by faith could have the sins that God otherwise will judge you for completely forgiven and that you can have a reconciled relationship to God. And all God calls you to do is believe and trust in Jesus Christ and, and turn from your sin. How do you respond to that message? Do you, do you respond like Peter, scoffing at such a ridiculous message? Or do you reject the salvation God has offered in Christ because you think it's silly or foolish or antiquated or barbaric? Right? Are, are, are you like Peter rebuking the Savior that God has sent for sinners like me and like you? You see, we can all find ourselves in Peter's shoes which as we'll see in a moment, is not a good place to be. And Jesus is not going to entertain this from Peter. 
He turns back. We almost get this picture that Jesus is, is walking away and that Peter says this and Jesus, you know, pulls a 180 here to respond to Peter and, and actually rebukes Peter much more strongly. And as he does so, he reveals the ultimate heart of Peter and our problem. In verse 23, the problem is man resists God's thoughts. Man resists God's thoughts. When Jesus hears Peter's rebuke, he, he doesn't respond to Peter nicely and say, you know what, Peter, let me think about it. Let me pray about it. Let me get back to you. No, his reply to Peter demonstrates he knows exactly what the Father's will is for him. And Peter is not going to change that. And Jesus says three things to Peter in his reply. Uh, the first is, get behind me, Satan. It's not a good day when Jesus calls you Satan, right? Um, that's a really strong statement. It's a really strong statement. Uh, never a good thing, right, when Jesus compares you to the arch enemy of all things good in the world. But, but why does Jesus say this? Um, well, first, the word Satan in Aramaic means adversary or, or opponent, right? That, there's, there's this general sense. It's not always used as a name, but as a, as a noun, right? And Jesus is certainly calling Peter an adversary or an opponent to his mission and to God's plan. But at the same time, it seems Jesus is, is actually meaning something a bit more impactful here. Think back to Matthew chapter 4, right, which is many years ago at this point, I know. Matthew chapter 4, Jesus goes into the wilderness out of his baptism, and who comes to tempt him? Satan does. And what was Satan's ultimate goal in doing this? It was to get Jesus to go against the will of God, to turn aside from the path that was laid out for him. That was what Satan's goal was. He's trying to get Jesus to go away from God's will. Is that not the same basic thing Peter is seeking to do? As R.C. Sproul observes, the time came when Peter stood up to oppose Jesus' plan to go to Jerusalem, suggesting, just as Satan had in the wilderness, that Jesus should avoid pain and suffering. Peter was opposing Jesus' divine mission just as the devil had. Now, I don't think Peter's trying to deceive Jesus. I don't think he's even purposely trying to tempt Jesus. But Jesus' admonition to Peter, his comparison of Peter to Satan, that's a wake-up call. That's a wake-up call to Peter. It's intended to make Peter realize the foolishness and, and even sinfulness of what he's doing by saying, don't go that way, Jesus. That's wrong. Regardless of where Peter's heart was at, he, he was simply wrong. He's simply wrong. And Jesus points out how wrong by calling him Satan. Right? Peter's rebuke, what we read in verse 22, that's more like what Satan would want than what God wants. What a, what a sobering moment for Peter. Right? What a terrible moment for Peter. And what a crushing but necessary moment for Peter. To realize that opposing God is the essence of Satan's mission. That's, that's Satan's number one goal in life. To oppose the will of God. May we not be found opposing God's will either. But Jesus goes on. And the second thing he says to Peter is that Peter is a hindrance to him. Hindrance to him. This is the Greek word uh, scandalon. We, we get our word scandal from this word. Same word used in the New Testament for stumbling block or, or offense. Now not only is Peter getting ahead of God, interfering with God's plan and hindering Jesus in what he must do. 
but Peter's also providing an occasion for Jesus' righteous indignation to rise up against him. Right? Peter is actually offending Jesus here with this suggestion that he'll never go to Jerusalem and suffer and die. Instead of cooperating with Jesus' divinely revealed plan and purpose, he's opposing it. Saying to Jesus, in effect, that's not going to work, Jesus. You need to do something else. And why does Peter respond this way? Well, we, we see why in the last part of the verse. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. This is really the crux of the problem, isn't it? Peter rejects Jesus' explanation of the gospel because his mind is set on the things of man, not the things of God. The things of man refers to, to a human way of thinking, as well as human goals, right? Human values. Now, Peter is operating from a human perspective here, a perspective that values the Messiah's political and military victory over the Roman Empire above all things. That's the greatest good in Peter's mind, it seems. And Jesus' plan, God's plan, doesn't, doesn't fit with that. And Peter's not alone in his response to the gospel, viewing it as foolishness. Uh, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1 with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. We read this, speaking of the gospel message, the word of the cross is folly, it's foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discerning, uh, the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. In other words, man cannot know God through his own reason. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block, a scandalon to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. One of my favorite passages in the Bible. Love it. The gospel message by default is received as foolishness from a human perspective, by man, by the world, by those operating from a mindset on the things of man. The gospel seems foolish. God has provided salvation in such a way that to the world, it's ridiculous. It's foolishness. But to those who have faith with eyes to see, what, is, what does Paul say? It is the wisdom of God. The gospel is the wisdom of God. Man cannot accept the gospel as anything less than foolishness unless God calls him and, and opens his eyes, right? But I love how Paul ends that section. God's foolishness, of course, God does not have any, but if he did, it would be far wiser than the wisest of men. 
and the weakness of God, which of course he has none, but if he did, it would be far stronger than even the strongest of men. And, and this describes Peter here. Right? Peter viewed Jesus' teaching about his death and resurrection as foolishness. He said, Jesus, that's not, no, never. He did not accept it as God's wisdom, but he saw it as foolish because he was locked into a human perspective. He thought he was wiser than God. Right? He was rejecting the wisdom of God revealed in the gospel for something he thought was better. Uh, but here too, we can't berate Peter too much since we often find ourselves doing the same thing. And, and, and sure, you're right, you might say, well, I would never claim I'm wiser than God. Right? I, I wouldn't either. We wouldn't put that on our theology exam. But our hearts would disagree. Now here's what I mean. When we suffer and we grumble and complain against God and about our circumstances, are we not in effect saying, God shouldn't be putting me through this? Right? In effect, we think we are wiser about our circumstances than God is. Or what about when we're discontent? When we are discontent, isn't the sentiment of our heart Things should be different. I should have other than I do. Is that not the heart of discontentment? Well, we think we're wiser about our position and possessions than God when we're discontent. What about when we're anxious? When we are not believing that you know, God has the future handled? Are, are we not really saying God isn't going to do a good enough job for the future, so I must try to control it? We think we're wiser about the future than God is. What about when we're bitter? When somebody hurts us and we are bitter, are we not in effect saying, I'm not going to forgive or show compassion to that person or try to understand them after all they've done to me? We think we're wiser about forgiveness and relationships than God is. Or what about when we're impatient? This is a big struggle for me. Are we not in effect saying, God's taking too long? We think we're wiser about our needs and our wants and timing than God is. And that's just the reality with sin in general, isn't it? This, insert sin here, is better than what God promises me. Right? We think we are wiser about what's good than God is when we sin. Isn't that what happens in the Garden of Eden? Don't eat of this tree. Just this one tree. For in the day you do, you will surely die. Well, hey. You're not going to die. Adam and Eve think they're wiser about what's good than God is. They don't believe God. All sin reflects our belief that we're wiser about what's good than God. This has been man's fundamental problem since the beginning. We think at some level we are wiser than God, that we know better than God, that we can do better than God. And again, we, we wouldn't put that down on our Christianity tests, right? But the dynamics and desires and struggles and sins of our heart reveal otherwise. You see, Peter, he's not submitting his thoughts to Christ. Right? He wanted Jesus to submit himself to Peter's thought. And we do the same. But, friends, God is so much greater than we are. He is so much greater than we are. Who are we to demand that God meet our expectations? Who are we to demand that God is obligated to do X, Y, Z? 
become the clear things he's promised. I'll turn over to Isaiah 55. A humbling passage. Isaiah 55. And God proclaims to us something here that we regularly need to be reminded of. Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the high heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Can we measure, really, that distance between the heaven and the earth? We can't. That's an immeasurable distance. And God says, that's how differently I think about things compared to you. This, how different my ways are compared to your ways. Oh man, God is very clear. He is different than us. His thoughts are different than ours. His ways are different than ours. But let's consider something here. We are not perfect. We do not know everything. We do not have all wisdom. We are weak. We are sinful. We are limited. But God is not. He is not. So who is really going to know best? God is. Peter didn't realize that God's plan was far better than anything he could come up with. Peter didn't realize that through Jesus' death and resurrection would come salvation for sinners, eternal life, a glorious kingdom that would never end. That's truly good news. Whatever Peter had in mind was lame by comparison. But Peter didn't realize that. Friends, our plans will never be better than God's. Right? Our thoughts will never be better than God's. Why? Why would we try to get out ahead of him? Now, brothers and sisters, we must submit ourselves to God, to his plan, to his purposes, his thoughts, his providence, to his word. That's why Peter, the same Peter we're reading about this morning, writes towards the end of his life in 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that the proper time he may exalt you. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. So many of our problems and struggles and sin come because we think God must submit to us. They really do. But, but when we learn to submit humbly to him, placing ourselves under his mighty hand and care, what is the result? What's the result when we fix ourselves on his purpose, his thoughts, his plans, when we seek his will through prayer rather than our will, what is the result? Philippians 4, 5 through 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Here it is. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, to, to, to speak frankly, we must repent and turn from our rebellious desires to make God do what we want. That's the height of audaciousness against Almighty God, isn't it? To see an ant yelling up. We must repent from our sinful mindset that we know better. We must ask God's forgiveness for that. That is wicked pride. But God also reminds us of his kindness, his grace, all of which are found as we return to him on his paths. We, we read from Isaiah 55 a few moments ago, verses 8 and 9, but 
I want to read the verses that come right before it, 6 and 7. The verses that tell us what we should do since God's thoughts are so much higher than ours. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. That's why we should submit ourselves to God's thoughts. That is where blessing is found, is under the mighty care of our God. Friends, it is good news that God doesn't think or plan or act like us. It is good news that when we turn back to God, He is there ready to pardon us and show compassion to us. It is good news that God's thoughts and ways are not ours. Because if we had to plan our salvation, it wouldn't have been through the cross. So brothers and sisters, don't get out ahead of God. Don't get out ahead of Him. But turn Back to Him. Humble yourselves before Him. Submit to Him. Follow His leading and His word. And in that, you will be blessed. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, You are abundantly wise. Lord, we do not even know what the next 10 seconds hold, and You know the beginning from the end. And Lord, not only that, but you have ordained the beginning from the end. Ordering history in such a way that you will receive the utmost glory and that we will receive the utmost good. Lord, forgive us for when we try to get in the way. Forgive us for those times when we think we know better than you. When the posture of our hearts is that of seeking our own way in rebellion against you, thinking we are wiser than you, Lord, forgive us of these sins. And we thank you, Lord, that because your ways and thoughts are higher than ours, that we have a promise before us of your abundant grace and mercy through Christ Jesus. So, Father, help us not to be like our brother Peter, but to learn from him and to learn from Jesus, our Master and our Lord, to humbly submit ourselves to your care resting in faith in your character, knowing that not only are you wise, but you are good. Lord, we give you praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, benediction for you as you go. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. You are loved. Thanks be to God. Please join us for some